Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrew, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Peter Colquill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And this week, we're discussing life on Venus. Um, Nick, I was going to say this week we're discussing whether there is life on Venus, but apparently there is life on Venus. Uh, well, tell us. not not necessarily. Ah. So uh, there has been a paper p- for a while. There's been speculation. I mean, dating back 30, 40 years, um, speculation about whether or not you could have life on Venus. And superficially, it's, you know, a hot, very hostile environment. The temperature is hundreds of degrees at the surface um the the russians uh developed some venus landers that you know landed there in the 80s and were very quickly destroyed by the environment um as expected but i mean you know that they they uh were able to send back a lot of useful data but within the clouds of venus um there is a habitable zone a zone that we think probably could could support what we understand to be the basics of life um at the same time, there's been these mysterious dark patches appearing in the clouds of Venus, for, for, for which have been observed for you know ever since we've been looking at it, and no one's quite sure what, sure what they are. But one of the theories was that uh, it was um, uh, essentially photosynthesis of some kind that that you know some organisms were capturing yeah. light, and so that you know there was like an algae light. bloom, yeah, it's the sort of thing. Anyway, last month, uh, to much um, excitement, Greaves and a whole bunch of other um, uh, academics published a paper called Phosphine Gas in the Cloud Decks of Venus. Right? Brilliant. And um, they were looking at uh, the essentially the, the wavelengths of light that are reflected from Venus. So using um, spectroscopy, so analysing the light waves that are reflected from the surface of Venus, you could we can now be very accurate about working out precisely what the chemical composition is of those those gases in the in the clouds. And it turns out there's quite there's a very high levels or unexpectedly high levels of a gas called phosphine PH three, which I don't know much about, I'm not a chemist, um, but. Uh, as I understand it, the only known process on Earth which produces phosphine mm. in anything like appreciable levels is bacteria. So mm. it's bacteria, specifically anaerobic bacteria, who emit it. They're not quite sure why, whether it's a waste product or whether it's just designed to sort of, because it's very toxic to get rid of, um, you know, uh, enemy bacteria or whatever. Um, and it's broken down quite quickly by sunlight, phosphine. Mm. So apparently uh, something must be generating it. Now, mm. uh, there are processes, uh, there are chemical processes which can produce phosphine. But as I understand it, they, they, as far as the scientists understand, they can only occur on gas giants, right? So mm. the specific chemistry of gas giants. Venus mm. isn't. It's a rocky planet. Mm. So, so the point is that this is considered to be a biosignature, mm. the production of phosphine is highly consistent with there being bacteria on Venus, in the clouds of Venus. So, first of all, what does this mean? I mean, how do we work out how likely it is that this is actually bacteria of some kind? Mm. And secondly, what would it mean if it was? What would it mean if there was life on Venus? Mm. Food for thought. I was going to say, why are we discussing this? Because we're not we're not astrobiologists. Well, I tell you why. First but, of all, you know, you've just told no, us why. Well, because I, mean, I think the the whole question of how you how you make uh, an inference about data 
when you are not sure what the model is kind of thing and uh but i think more more generally what does it tell us about uh about life you know about whether whether life could exist elsewhere what does it mean finding it on a doorstep okay talking about strange forms of life uh peter <laughs> um well i haven't really got much to to add to the the intro but this might be a quick podcast I don't yeah, like, so well, no i've got other things to talk oh about. okay but yes it looks quite great it's it's uh the most of the, there are biological processes prevalent all over the earth uh, which are known to produce it that, but there are there are industrial processes which we wouldn't expect to be replicated kind of in the natural world but it's either produced as a as the end product or as a byproduct of other processes mm-hmm. and as nick says yes the, the 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 energies and the chemistry available within the gas giants being jupiter and saturn of course um can cause it to be formed at there or near the core and, and but we're talking like the 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 the, the, the composition is very different to a rocky planet obviously because it's not rock um but the the energies involved are massive there's the pressures and the temperatures inside the core of these planets is is vast compared to those found on rocky planets so the, the the speculation is just very unlikely to be caused by any known natural process on 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 venus mm-hmm. okay um i've forgotten the question why this is interesting <laughs> it's- well first of all i mean i think i think the the, the first question is what, what how does it work that we we can think of a process on earth uh, which is bacteria that generate phosphine. Now, the fact that we can't think of, a pro- of another process that might be producing phosphine in Venus, how likely is it that we just haven't thought of the thing that it actually is? Which is, and so just, I mean, it's worth bearing in mind that, you know, in the 90s, there was a lot of interest in the Allen Hills, uh, Allen Hills meteorite, which was a meteorite that had originated from Mars and was mm. found in, in, um, uh antarctica i think and there was a lot of excitement because they discovered on its surface little deposits that looked like bacteria or Mm. you know not like earth bacteria but some possibly some kind of alien bacteria um bill clinton's you know issued a statement because it was so significant that we could have discovered life uh you know outside earth and um uh, anyway, it's now known that these, this is just the simple, you know, result of chemical processes. <clears throat> so, you know, we're in a position where we don't really necessarily know that we we, we might have just not thought of what the process is, or we right. might, there might be so this could a be process just like that. that we can't imagine for whatever reason. Hmm. Um, you know, which which is producing this that we just haven't encountered on Earth. You know, and 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 this, but this is quite a common situation where you have data and no model and it's much harder like most most analysis goes the other way like most analysis analysis is like well you have you have uh, a model and you have some data and what you're trying to do is fill in the rest of the data with the model you know so um if you're trying to work out uh you know how likely it is that someone has um particular disease and you have a load of imaging data and you also understand that process where you know you know how you know what the difference is between the kinds of images where they got the disease and the kind where they haven't, you know, and you can put a certain probability on it. And we all of the processes are understood, right? We we totally understand how that disease behaves. We understand how the imaging behaves, and and there's no kind of the uncertainty is all understood and, and quantified. But here we're in a very similar situation to a lot of. Um, you know uh, sort of astro uh, astronomical problems 
which is that, you know, we see phenomena that we don't really know how to explain. And and if you look at the history of astronomy, it tends to, you know, new concepts appear as a result of finding weird, inexplicable things. Like, mm. you know, when they discovered quasars or, or phasars or whatever it was where, you know, they were getting these regular routine um, radio wave transmissions. And everyone thought, well, that's it. We've discovered uh, an alien civilization. And it turned out it was just these, you know, extremely fast spinning stars. Mm. Um likewise you know that's that's i mean how likely is it that that's that that's the case and i think it's a bit like you know you you don't really know how big that space of possible processes is and how much of it we've searched um so so yeah that, that's that's what i'd say is i i think it's pretty exciting um but uh it's very hard to to say what the probability is mm. that this is life all we can say was is that it might be okay mm. Um, and that most of the times in the past where we've thought that something might be life, it turns it out not to be. But that in this case, we've got some other equally good reasons for thinking it is. Uh, Peter? I think it might might help to sort of... I mean, I'm just trying to work out what's different about this one from the other ones, but why it's possibly, you know, more indicative. But anyway, sorry, Peter. So it might, might be helpful to sort of uh, provide a bit of sort of a kind of like as a casual observer of science mm. um how much should you really take this seriously so on the one hand there's lots of good science saying yes it's quite a high probability that it's uh as a result of biological life so non so yeah but so there's a biological source to it that said um it's this is the, this is the first paper that has um provided this as an explanation um now this will become because it's quite big news and it will be a source of lots of funding for research groups etc this will become a big thing and as a result there'll be loads of counter theories presented uh, and maybe slightly more obscure chemistry that people haven't necessarily really pinned down and saying actually this kind of process could occur in the natural world like venus a natural environment like venus under the following circumstances and then so there might be there'll be counter example counter ex- explanations for it so it's it good. It's like you know, it pushes up your. So how far should it push up your probability of believing there's life on Venus? I would say a little bit. You know, rather than a big leap. Okay. Rather, like the headlines would like to have you believe, and I think the original authors would say yes. It's just one possibility. It's not like it's not definitive. Um. So yeah. So, the, the, so there's going to be lots more good science. Um. We, as a result, there's probably going to be big grants for f- sending probes to Venus to collect more data. And, scrape the clouds and to image you know have have orbiters and things perpetually sampling mm. so it's all good for human exploration um but it's not yeah it's not there's certainly nothing definitive about this yet okay um yeah so at the moment i'm going back and forth saying peter nick nick peter peter i mean i, I don't really have a aliens question. so is this what we want to talk about is- well i think i think well, i don't know if we've ever done one about uh, alien life mm. but now, I suppose this is where I want to introduce a note of probably some quite existential caution. Mm. Because um, Nick Bostrom, who is uh, a, um, who is a, well, he's actually a philosopher, but he's done a lot of work into catastrophic risk. And uh, he's looked at, you know, artificial intelligence safety and that kind of thing. But he wrote this quite famous paper called Why I Hope There Isn't Life on Mars. Mm. And, um, to understand where he's coming from, first of all, you know, we've got to think about uh, sort of various various, um, various other kind of concepts that people have considered over time. 
one of the first people to really think about this seriously was when did he write this paper he wrote the paper about 10 years ago okay. or something okay so frank drake who was a um who was a, a i think he was maybe one of the guys who worked on the manhattan project or anyway he was a scientist about 50 years ago um came up with a kind of model for for uh, how many uh, intelligent spacefaring civilizations there should be out there mm. and um you know it looked at things like well how many uh, how many stars are there at any given time uh, how many of them have planets um how many of those planets are going to be habitable kind of thing and then you know what's the chance that life starts on on a planet given that it's not there to begin with and then goes on to become intelligent life mm. And then that it develops a spacefaring technology and, you know, becomes a, a sort of alien, uh, an alien of interest. And, 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 pres- and they- presume, sorry, to, presumably the chances are, are so, so, so are, are tiny, but actually you end up with loads of them because it's such a big universe. Right, exactly. And so they're all I mean, far it away. Wasn't, and we're just talking about the Milky Way. We're not even thinking about other galaxies. Oh, just this galaxy. Yeah, yeah. So the, and, and they initially, they, they thought there are probably thousands of them out there. Mm. And this takes into account the life, the average lifetime. You know, you think, well, how long are they a space-faring civilization for? Um, so on one hand, you've got the Drake equation, which seems to say, well, there's loads of, uh, there should be loads of, intelligent life out there yes it's a tiny probability it'll happen on any given planet but there's so many planets and in fact <coughs> as time's gone on we've discovered more and more exoplanets and you know we know that they there must be exoplanets that are in habitable zones and you know a lot of them have water and so there's actually like we, we've, we've kind also, of we've, we've also sort of tweaked what we believe to be the habitable zone it's got wider if anything because of discoveries of, of extremophiles on earth yeah 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 they yeah, can survive yeah. in sort of non-traditional habitable zone areas right exactly like venus in fact and mm, uh, mm. uh venus is very acidic but actually there are there are bacteria that live in acidic pools in uh, in in on earth but then the response to the drake equation was from was enrico fermi the fermi paradox where he said well if that's true like where are they because as soon as you become a spacefaring civilization you ought to pretty quickly and i mean over millions of years but that's quickly in a sort of you know geological time very quickly take over the whole galaxy. Right? Mm. You should just spread, capture more and more energy, capture more mass, spread throughout the galaxy. So if that's true, where are they? Mm. And and so you know, people who take that uh, who take that seriously, uh, sort of, essentially, you've got two options. One is that we're actually the first. Mm. The other is that well, the Drake equation, the numbers we put on are wrong. And that's somewhere within the Drake equation. There's what's called the Great Filter. So the well, there's a, there is a third, slightly less serious. Well, well, that, well, well the third yeah, is let's get with, David Icke on well, here, kind uh, of thing. I mean, I mean, yeah, I'll be interested. I want to hear what Peter's uh, third option is. Yeah, what's but, this filter thing? So, so the well, first of all, to say that if life's common and, and the idea that we're the first just has to be very, very unlikely. If there are ten thousand alien civilizations that we would expect to see soon. And we're the first. Well, there's only a one in 10,000 chance that that's the case. So mm. that's kind of an unlikely theory to begin with. The Great Filter is saying, well, actually, we, we've got it wrong that life is incredibly rare for some reason. But intelligent spacefaring life is incredibly rare. And it could be a number of reasons, right? So, so it could be 
for one end well maybe there aren't any exoplanets maybe earth is just incredibly rare maybe getting life going in the first place you know one prokaryote is just really hard to evolve but then maybe multicellular life well, that was the big innovation that happened here but isn't going to happen anywhere else and um you know all the way through to well maybe for some reason technological or economic it, it just is impossible to become a spacefaring civilization like it just turns out to be the energy you need is too high and and in fact it's never never makes sense to do that mm. um through to you know well actually all organisms that evolve evolve in a competitive environment and eventually destroy themselves with the technology mm-hmm. that you need mm-hmm. to, to explore the space so if the great filter we're in one of two but we don't know where the great filter is is it in front of us or behind us but we assume it exists because those aliens aren't there if the great filter is behind us great yes because it means that we're on track off we go we've gone through the great filter and it's space here we come yeah if the great filter is in front of us oh dear bad yeah we're going to kill ourselves we're not going to ever get to that dan dare dream the whole point of this nick bostrom paper is to say if we find life on our doorstep right it shows that that's quite a lot of the great filter is 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 cannot is is not in bits that are behind us and it pushes where it might be so that it becomes more probable the great filter is in front of us, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So, so if is it, it, we might have comforted ourselves and said, well, you know, but it's really difficult to get bacteria to evolve, that, or to get single-celled life to evolve. Like that's really, really hard. So we've got through that. So that's great. If it turns out that actually it's all over the place, including in Venus, then we can't comfort ourselves with that, and we face the 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 fact that actually the great filter is more likely to be in front of us. It's a bit like if you're trying to work out why girls haven't phoned you you mm. know and you might think well maybe there aren't any girls in my area mm. um uh, but or maybe they don't fancy me uh or you know maybe my phone's not working and then you discover that actually there's loads of girls in your area because you look on tinder and discover there's millions of them and it turns out that they well it makes it more likely that they just don't fancy you mm-hmm. you know it's sort of that kind of situation we we've we've just we kind of discovered that we're in a situation where we might not where we, we we might not be through the great filter and we've got all that horror to come interesting interesting yeah. peter so there's a couple there was uh, so i think it, robin hansen i think was the first guy to posit the uh great filter right. idea could have been yeah um so so uh we should, so the whole life being on the doorstep idea there might need to be a nuance you have to consider so it might it might just turn out that it's very easy once you once life evolves on one planet for it to then spread in a very primitive form to other planets within that system so the 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 trip to venus or to mars from earth assuming it evolved the first on earth is pretty small uh, and it and it's and as that as the 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 meet what was the name of the meteorite alan hills the alan hills meteorite yeah um showed that rocks from one planet quite regularly land on another and there are there are there are there are there are theories uh called panspermia um it's a lovely word uh which 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 explain the mechanisms for how how this can happen so mm. it usually involves some sort of cataclysmic uh, event the big meteorite hits the planet and just throws lots of stuff up some of which is thrown up with enough energy for it to escape the orbit and land on neighboring mm. planets now interstellar travel mm. is a whole nother ball game mm. right so our nearest star is 4.2 light years away mm. um uh, which is around 27,000 times the distance from us to our sun. Yeah. 
So that's 27,000 times sort of more kind of... Than what's already a long way. Already a long way to get stuff out there. So it might be that the, the, just the chart... So, so panspermia might not be able to occur between between planets and there, between mm. planets. So that's something you have to bear in mind when you're considering these numbers. So it might just be that life on the doorstep doesn't really tell you very much. If life, we discover life in the nearest star, that tells quite a bit more. Yeah, it might be that really we're discovering the same life. We're discovering and, the same And, and, and I, I suppose you'd want to look at the bacteria and find out if they they share a common ancestor with exactly, Earth bacteria. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we need to kind of... I wish we didn't have to, but we kind of need to wrap this up. And by the way, people who work on this stuff full-time, how do they get up in the morning and have their cornflakes? I don't know. I mean, just, I mean, how do they sort of live a normal life and go around oh, each day? So, you know? It's so fascinating. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. You know, how could you? Um, so but I wanted to bring up... There was a, yeah. thir- there was a third idea. There was okay, a third, yeah, go on. So there's a... There's the, I'm not sure how serious this is, but, it, you know, if you're a Star Trek fan, it, it seems plausible. Um, but the idea of the cosmic zoo... <laughs> Cosmic Zoo. Cosmic Zoo. Okay. So this is where there is the I'm going to early, like this one. early, much earlier in the life of the universe, uh, uh, intelligent life evolved. Yeah. Uh, and became spacefaring. And in terms, in our in our terms, in our technological terms, they are godlike. They are very powerful. They can move okay. without being seen. They can travel around, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, at great speed. Um, and they've taken upon themselves to sort of curate the life of the universe yeah or the galaxy and only select those life forms which they deem worthy by some by some measure okay so they so so when when planets evolve life that gets to a certain become spacefaring and begins to sort of encroach on their turf yeah if they like the look of them they'll let them into the club and okay. show them how to how to operate as they do if they don't, they'll just sort of expunge it. In one yeah. I think that's the this plot is... of uh, the day the Earth stood still. Right, Klaatu comes to Earth and says, "You know, you've got to the point where you're going to destroy yourself, and so we we've come to say hello." Yeah, and you know, we're going to teach you to stop being such morons. Yeah, no, this is also straight out of Star Trek, and this is is like um, basing theories of time travel on Back to the Future. That's what it sounds like to me so far. So was, uh... I really like the idea. Or there's also the cosmic backwater theory where. You know, well, there are probably ponds in the US where humans don't regularly turn up or pay, take an interest. Yeah. And the people there might go, well, it shows there's no such thing as humans. Yeah. But actually, it's just that they're somewhere really boring. Maybe life is really common. And, you know, yeah. you know, in the last few hundred years, no one's popped by. But that's yeah. because why are, would they? We are at the unfashionable end of the West. Oh, you, know, you, you took yeah. it out. Yeah. No, I mean, I think the um, the the comeback to this is is that uh, the the kinds of civilizations that we're envisaging ought to be able to construct megastructures that would have a signature, right? So, um, for example, a Dyson sphere, which is uh, essentially a kind of um, load of things that orbit a sun Mm. and uh, capture the energy of the sun and therefore can use it to do something useful with instead of what it's doing at the moment, which is just flying off into space, most of it. And, um, you know, if, if, if we were to see a sun which had much lower sort of energy output than it should have, then we might be able to infer there's a Dyson sphere. And in fact, um, something like that was discovered in 2017. Um, the thing got a place called Tabby's Star, uh, where um, they thought that the... Um, they thought that there could be a, an alien megastructure there, and I think they've subsequently decided it's probably dust in, in interstellar dust or something mm. getting in the way. But the point is that we don't see things like that. Like you ought to see um, 
heat signatures like the amount of energy involved in the things that we envisage happening ought to give off heat signatures now you know the the flip side of that is well maybe they've invented incredible you know anti-thermodynamics technologies but that would really violate some very fundamental assumptions about physics um so so anyway so i think the the sort of the upshot is every time we find a techno signature thumbs up great seems like the great filter is behind us every time we find a bio signature that's actually bad it means the the um the great filter is more likely to be in front of us so as long as we're finding more techno signatures than we are bio signatures um, everything's great i like this great filter concept uh, um but also sum up in another way either i forget where i read this or who said this but either we are alone or we are not either way it's mind-boggling Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. being yeah. the case, uh, I've got a re- I've got a great question Go for on. you. Okay. What or who is your favorite alien? Presumably we're taking this from the realms of fiction, right? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> not I'm not allowed the Venusian the Venusian cloud bacteria. You are, well you are actually well, you know you are allowed no, them. No, I'm you not going to pick them. They're boring. Their conversation is So terrible. yeah. Uh, so yeah who or what or from where is yeah your favorite alien have a think about that well i've got uh i do have an answer but i i don't want to it might be the same as peter's it probably isn't go ahead go first go on then my I've, favorite I've got a few so you got a few okay is, God, i've been trying to think of the last 10 minutes but anyway yeah go on um my my favorite alien actually Cartu from um from the day the yesterday still is up there actually because he's played by michael rennie who i love but my favorite alien is just the good old-fashioned alien yeah. from Ridley Scott's film. Okay, and, yeah, and yeah. what I liked, what I like about it is it now the the issue is it is a man in a suit. Now he was trying, sort of trying to get away from that a bit by making it really mysterious and strange looking, mm. and I think he did a pretty good job. And you can headcanon it a bit by saying, well, you know, any animal that evolved anywhere is going to evolve legs because you know you're not going to evolve wheels and four legs is about right. I thought it was accepted right. canon the alien was a manufactured like right, form. right. So what I was going to say is how incredibly disappointing it is. Right, in the same way it would be disappointing to discover that these Venus bacteria. Um, actually evolved on Earth and just moved planet. Um, how incredibly boring it is that the uh, you know prequels, Prometheus and Covenant, decided to make it the case. Spoiler alert: if you haven't seen them, but decided to make it the case that they were created by an android. Um, you I know, didn't the, know the aliens. No. The, the aliens were just were bred specially, you know, to be kind of weapons essentially. Um, by a an android that was created by a human and and of course you know in much the same way that it would be disappointing to discover that the venus bacteria if they exist evolved on earth it's super disappointing that you know you look at alien that that set with the space jockey it's just one of the best sci-fi scenes ever made because it's so mysterious it's so properly alien Mm -hmm. you just they have no idea what these things are or where they come from or where they were going and you didn't need to know any of that mm. because you just thought well that whatever this is it's i know i don't i'm not going to understand it it's, it's someone that has done this for reasons that i couldn't comprehend but the net result is you've got a terrifying alien in your spaceship um now it's like oh right so some boring android made these yeah, and yeah. left them here well that's you know it suddenly shrinks the universe yeah, right yeah, there yeah 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 uh peter you and your many aliens so i'm a big fan of the borg from Star Trek, okay, specifically okay. the Next Generation and Voyager, and uh, indeed uh, Deep Space Nine. But yeah, they, so they are. If you're not familiar, they are a, a, a cyber, cybernetic race. They're part biological, part machine, mm. 
um, and they operate in a totally connected um, sort of uh, like. This is starting to sound like an advert. For, yeah, go on. Yeah, it's an advert for my utopia. They're they're, yeah. they're they're totally connected in this thing that they call the unimatrix. I think. Yeah. Basically, they're all connected by the internet to each other, and they can talk to each other, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And they 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 behave more like a sort of swarm of ants or flies that coordinated swarm than they do as a group of individuals. You mean just like Democrats? Just like- Sorry, that's a, I'm, that's a quote from a Bob Hope. <laughs> oh, I'm not, I, don't, I don't mean that, I just couldn't resist. Um, and the reason I like them is that the, it would have been very easy to write that, that, that species as being kind of having a, a particular prejudice that they're trying to expunge, like they do with others. So other Star Trek races are modelled on various despotic um, nations and things. But the Borg, their only prejudice is against imperfection. Mm. And they have a very particular view of what perfection is, and perfection is is they, they're pursuing, always pursuing it, and never and acknowledging they'll never reach it. But the way they go about doing that is a simulation of other races. Mm. And they, they when when you meet the Borg, it's bad news because you're probably going to lose the fight. But mm. they, they they say prepare to be assimilated. Your uniqueness will be added to our own because they they don't they don't try to expunge people's uniqueness. They're trying to bring it in. And yeah. In a way, the, the perfect things. multicultural society. In a way, yeah. In a way, but um, uh, but you do once you're a Borg, you don't mind, right? Once you're a Borg, you're, you're a fairly, you don't know, yeah. And 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 many Borg, when when released from the collective, suffer great sort of psychological damage because they want to go they, back they, in. It seems like these Borgs are they're, they're onto something in some way. In yeah. many ways, yeah, yeah. Got a bad they get name. a bad. They get a bad. They rap. need better PR, don't they? They need yeah. better PR. Yeah. Um, well, they've just got some. Um, okay, <laughs> I I don't really have an answer. There are so many. Um, you know, I quite like Q. I quite like the Q continuum yeah. um, in Star Trek, just because he's a bit of an annoying gear. But he's got a bit number of number two. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. So I'm in good company. Um, you know, he's just fun if you can call him a he. I don't know, but and I like the way he always winds up Picard and makes Picard look a bit dull and um, pedestrian. Um, what I like about the Q is it's sort of a sort of logical end state for a, a, a all-powerful race of being that's doesn't have any physical form can take can can manipulate energy and matter to do whatever they like to the point but they still have failures of their pre, where they of their previous race are a bit like a bit human in a way because they've become entirely decadent mm. because they have all this power they've got nothing more to achieve they just go around causing a nuisance with, yeah. with other people yeah no quite yeah, fun. does that does sound familiar yeah um i can see you thought about this a lot more than i have already <laughs> Pete. um okay we're going to wrap up there um thank you as always for listening to the cognitive engineering podcast i'm fraser mcgrew i've been here with nick Hare and peter cockill of aleph insights until next time goodbye mm-hmm.